So usually how I like to start these conversations is, is really about an individual's journey. And when I speak to them, they're working on something pretty fascinating and it's going to be part of their life for, for a while. I just kind of want to take the, the quick roadmap of, of how you went sort of from a mechanical engineer by, by trade in college to becoming a co-founder of a sustainable diamond company. My, my path to get here hasn't really been a straight shot. It's, it's actually bounced left and right a few times. And, you know, I came out of school in the height of the recession. There was a significant portion of my graduating class that didn't have jobs. I had been working in New York City over summers, uh, interning for a company that did, you know, high-end cabinetry and furniture, custom stuff for, you know, really high-end clientele and, and, and was able to parlay that into an entry-level job working for a company that made high-end architectural home hardware. So architectural home hardware is a really fancy way of saying expensive custom doorknobs. <laughs> and I worked for a company nice. <laughs> that made, you know, really custom doorknobs and hinges and finials and lock sets for some of the world's elite clientele included Madonna, Jay-Z, Michael Bloomberg. So I got exposure to that really early and, and really, you know, that was the base for my, for my career, understanding, you know, how to build and develop luxury products, you know, for a discerning client. And, uh, I was only at the company for a couple of months when the owner approached me, he had seen a, a video that I'd published on YouTube of an electric motorcycle that I'd built at home. And, uh, I think at the time I had over a hundred thousand views and he said, oh, so you're, you're pretty good with your hands. We, <laughs> we've actually been looking for someone internal that we could tap to build out our metal foundry. And at the time they were doing some small, uh, small format investment casting. And this is actually the same method that's used to cast metal for jewelry. And they were doing that for some of their smaller pieces and they wanted to expand their capabilities and basically bring things in house that were prior you know, being outsourced. So I jumped at the opportunity and you know, here I was only a few months out of school. And now I was tasked with essentially building out this manufacturing facility, building out our standard operating procedures, hiring and training the team. It was a huge jump up in responsibility and, and pay. And I was excited about, about it. And we, we got this large format metal casting operation off the ground and things were going swimmingly. The challenge for me was, it was a really far drive from where I was living to uh, mid, mid Long Island, um, mm -hmm. you know, probably like a two hour drive each way. Oof. And uh, yeah, so, you know, that was, that was tough to do for a long time. And, and it, you know, it became more and more difficult as, as time continued. And I ended up leaving and, finding a job uh, that was tangentially related in the world of jewelry. So I started working for David Yerman and, you know, obviously the, the, the prerequisite for understanding how to make jewelry is understanding a little bit about metal casting. And obviously I had, you know, relevant experience in that dealing with small metal componentry. A lot of the, the stuff that we did with, uh, with respect to the architectural home hardware actually had, you know, small mechanics involved, whether that'd be like set screws, or, you know, different elements to help assemble the pieces. So a lot of it actually tied very closely to how jewelry was manufactured. And, uh, and I found myself working for David Yerman on uh, like day three or four of, of, uh, of my employment at David Yerman. I uh, ended up meeting uh, one of the guys who's higher up, who was running their new men's team. We were, I think, parking our motorcycles outside of the office and we get to talking. He's like, oh, you know, who are you? You're new here, yada, yada, yada. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm the newest member of the, of the men's jewelry team. And uh, we had a, a really wonderful experience over the next few years growing this, this men's line, which really succeeded in integrating non-traditional materials and bringing them into the world of jewelry. Things like Gibeon meteorite. You see it all over now. Right. That was not the case 10 years ago. So the Gibeon meteorite was a meteorite that broke up over Africa several thousand years ago. And it has this really cool internal 
crystalline lattice structure. So if you cut the stone and you acid etch it, it reveals that pattern that is otherworldly. And that would make sense because it doesn't come from this planet. And it's it's a beautiful material. It's hard to make into fine jewelry because it's ferrous and it will rust. So you have to use chemistry and material science to essentially unlock that material and, and, and utilize it in, in these luxury products in, in a way that satisfies consumer expectations. So worked on that, sat in between design and large-scale manufacturing and developed collections that heavily relied on these non-traditional materials. And then I ended up leaving the industry. Um, I, I founded a, a direct-to-consumer connected safety products company for the motorcycle market and left the world of jewelry in my rearview mirror and, and focused on that. I built that company up. We scaled our products to a consumer footprint in 130 plus countries around the world over the course of five and change years and uh, had a really wonderful experience, you know, learning the path of, of the entrepreneur and, and, and really honing my skills and understanding what it takes to start and, and scale a business and then ultimately sell the business. So I found myself in 2018 wondering, you know, what comes next and had this crazy idea. What if we could <laughs> take this harmful form of carbon that mm -hmm. is, is contributing to global warming and remove it from the air in such a way that we could use it to produce diamonds? Diamonds are the, you know, one of the most valuable and, and enduring forms of carbon known to man, surely there's some type of chemistry we could use to, to employ, to make this happen. And uh, that was the, the initial thesis. So, you know, when we founded the company in 2018, um, you know, that was, that was the kind of underlying concept that we wanted to go and, and explore. And, and here we are, it's been three years just about, and uh, we're now in production, getting ready to fulfill our first customer orders. We, we've been growing our, our wait list, which has been going really well. And, and reception from consumers has been fantastic. So in short, that's kind of my, uh, you know, my, my Reader's Digest version of sure. how I got to, to where I am today. Were you studying sort of in 2018, were you deep diving into carbon capture and, and what was possible with it? Or was this something you, you had a friend circle that like just you, you guys started talking about it or somebody tapped you on your shoulder and said, hey, you should look at this. Or was it just through your discovery that you could re you realize that you could even do this, right? And I think it's important to explain like, what are we, what are we actually doing here? You're telling me we could capture carbon and create diamonds, right? Like there's such a, a such a path there. Like how, how do we... How do you get to that point, right? Where you can take air and turn it into diamonds. Like, could you just take us through that crazy yeah. process? So, you know, it, it all stems from a conversation my co-founder Dan and I were having. We worked together at David German way back when, built up a friendship that, you know, lasted us over the past decade. And even though, you know, our career paths had diverged and, and he'd moved overseas and you know, we stayed in touch. He was a buddy. And we got to a point where we were chatting over various startup ideas and, and catching up. He was living in Thailand. I was here, you know, in, in the New York area. And it'd be like 8 a.m. U.S. or Eastern, I should say, and, and you know, 8 p.m. In, in Bangkok. And we'd both be taking our dogs for a walk, catching up. And, and uh, you know, he'd wear face masks because the air pollution you know, in, in Bangkok was right. considerable. And, and you can actually like, if you, if you're, if the conditions are bad enough, you get a sore throat just from breathing the air in and along, you know, and I've seen this myself having spent some time in China, uh, experienced that directly where, you know, a day of walking around, you feel like you just smoked a pack of cigarettes. And we get to talking about air pollution in general. And I'd been reading a book uh, that focuses on all different types of decarbonization initiatives that are happening all over the world and, and direct air capture. If, if, you're familiar with, you know, the kind of the timing and, and the space and how things developed. It was like right around then, late 2017, early 2018, where direct air capture started getting a little bit more attention. You know, some of the first DAC plants were coming online. And as someone who's always been fascinated by material science, uh, you know, both professionally and, and personally, it was something that, that just grabbed my attention. And 
on a random call with Dan talking about air pollution, I said, you know, wouldn't it be funny if we could turn CO2 into diamonds? I mean, that would be so cool. Talk about, talk about alchemy. And uh, I think it was like a week later, we were catching up again. And, and uh, the idea of making diamonds out of atmospheric CO2, I said, me neither. <laughs> I've been thinking about it all week. And that's how we got started. I, I literally pulled out, I think I own every single textbook I ever bought for college. I, <laughs> I never, I couldn't justify selling those books back after right. I paid, knowing, oh, knowing what so I would get for them. And, and uh, I, my, my wife still gives me grief about it because I've got all of these engineering textbooks. She's like, you're never going to use them. And I proved her wrong because I, I pulled out some old engineering textbooks from chemistry and material science classes that I've taken and really went as deep as I could go to put together a proposed process for what mm. this could look like. But I had no idea if it was going to work or not. It was a little bit too in-depth for in certain areas. Like there was just things that I couldn't unpack to the degree that I wanted to without going down a much deeper rabbit hole. So I called my brother, who's a chemical engineer. And I said, hey, Jim, you know, I, I want to pitch an idea by you. Tell me if this holds water. You know, I, I, I don't want to spend any time or money on this unless I know that right. there's something here. And he said, oh, you know, like, give me, give me your information. I'll take a look at it and call me up the next day. He's like, yeah, I mean, I, I think this could work, but you need to talk to my friend, Anthony. And Anthony's a guy who I'd met also probably about a decade back. I remembered him being, you know, super sharp and he was a, my brother and him studied chemical engineering together. He loops me back in with Anthony, who I hadn't spoken to in a few years, and, and we get to talking and he's like, oh, this sounds really interesting. I'm like, listen, I can't hire you, but I, you know, we could maybe do some kind of nights and weekends consulting thing mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. take a little bit of time to vet this. I just, you know, I, I want to get a professional opinion. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer. I'm not a chemical engineer, but I, I have a pretty good handle on things. And he came back and said, yeah, I, I think this is going to work and I'll, I'll quit my job today. This is amazing. I want to wow. be a part of this. And he ended up becoming our third co-founder. Wow. So. Yeah, it's it's been interesting how that all you know kind of unfolded, and and it was a lot of the a lot of it was just right place, right time, right people. I want to try to draw a parallel here that <laughs> I, I I hope to make me understand it better, and hopefully maybe for some of the listeners to to grapple with the idea a little better. So you know, in Causars, we've covered a lot of companies that are are taking uh, plastic out the ocean, right? Mm -hmm the garbage of the ocean, so to speak, taking it out and creating products from it. Would you say that? It, Carbon capture is taking garbage from the air and then creating something out of it. Is there a parallel we can draw there from taking garbage out the ocean and creating products to taking garbage out the air, so to speak, quote unquote, and creating yeah. products from it? There's definitely a parallel. Okay. Right. When I when I think of work that people are doing to, you know, productize pollution in the ocean, much of that is plastic, mm -hmm. you know, PET, high density poly polyethylene. And, and these are these are plastics that can be melted into new product mm -hmm. um, that isn't as technically challenging or complex. Right. Because right. it's all requires... it's already physical. Right. It's, it's kind of right. Yeah. The, the bigger challenge is actually going and finding the waste and, and collecting Correct. You know, a, enough volume of, of plastic waste from the ocean. For us, CO2 is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. So you don't have to go on a boat, go out into the ocean and, and try and collect the stuff. You don't have to pull it from the coastlines. Um, it, it's something that is everywhere. So, you know, the, the broad, let me, let me say this, the, the area where most companies are focusing on direct air capture is really just related to the air capture itself, pulling the CO2 from the air, not productizing it. In fact, the number one way that, you know, these companies are monetizing is actually by burying the CO2 in the ground. If you pump CO2 into the ground, it will actually chemically bond to certain rock formations and be locked underground forever. So they monetize through the sale right. of carbon credits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, now these are these are 
carbon sinks, these projects, um, you know, they're, they're sinking this carbon into the ground, think like a heat sink, right? Mm -hmm. Heat sink absorbs heat. You're, you're permanently locking this carbon under the ground. This is not just like offsets against future emissions. This is actually tangibly driving an improvement by removing environmental carbon. The focus, you know, for, for ether and for some other companies that are out there, and we're not the only one by any measure, right. but there are now groups that are coming in and saying, all right, now we can, we can look at this as like a, a mining operation. We are mining the sky. We're taking this valuable element carbon and then we can productize it. instead of just sticking it underground there are there are companies working on fuels for instance um, there are companies that are working on well, there's stuff some stuff I, i'm really i'm just not at liberty to talk about because sure. i'm on nda about stuff that i yeah, know yeah, I'm aware sure, of. Sure. but uh we, we do see a lot happening in the fuels area you know uh, opus 12 prometheus these are companies that are that are working on air to fuel uh, synthesis mm -hmm. based on atmospheric carbon uh, it actually ties to some of the technology that we're utilizing in our tech stack we're just doing it to a much more stringent degree of, of purity and, and, and composition of, of the hydrocarbon we are synthesizing from the air has to be very, very, very specific if we're going to use that to make diamonds. The, the term lab-grown diamonds has sort of been around for not a while, but I would say, you know, what, 10 years, maybe something like that. It's Commercially, kinda... yeah. I, I'd say probably around that nine years, maybe, uh, yeah, it... you know, since it, since it's been out there. Uh, but the science is much older than that. Yep. The first diamond that was synthesized in a laboratory happened in 1954. Uh, wow. It's an engineer working for GE, um, H. Tracy Hall. And I believe he got $10 for that breakthrough. <laughs> and it's an unfortunate story yeah. as to what happened with him, but he, he was you know, essentially forced out of the company and you know they went on to make how many you know countless dollars making diamonds for industrial purposes. And, and later on, about 30 years ago, a new methodology came to pass. It was uh, a little bit more, at the time it was promising, but it was, it was really underdeveloped. That process is called chemical vapor deposition and it has since improved significantly. And now CVD is kind of the leading methodology for making high quality, large diamonds. HPHT, which is the, the process that GE developed back in the fifties is more well suited for growing smaller stones because HPHT stone, you know, the rough diamond has more inclusions, more imperfections, and you end up cutting around that. And you, it's much easier just to get a larger volume of smaller stones. And when we talk about lab grown, maybe go through what that actually is, right? Because it, it's, it's kind of, I mean, obviously we come from historically, you know, as a consumer, as just general people in the public when we hear lab grown diamonds like it, it's we hear lab we hear grown right we think plants right we think you know greenhouse right so like how does it actually diamond get grown right like what is what does that even mean yeah so you know essentially a diamond as we all know it and i'm not talking about simulants and it's very important to distinguish between what is actually diamond material and mm -hmm. what is close to diamond material like cubic zirconia right okay so cubic zirconia are you know essentially it's it's a crystalline structure that doesn't have the same material properties doesn't have the same optical properties is is an inferior material you can use these for you know sampling you can use these for custom jewelry they are not diamonds and even the untrained eye can tell the difference mm -hmm. right so i want to make sure that we're, we're we're drawing a line in the sand and when we talk about lab grown diamonds we're not talking about simulants we're talking about actual diamond material these you know these stones are chemically atomically identical to what comes out of the ground and what was formed in the earth's crust a couple billion years ago but instead of taking a couple billion years to to eventually be excavated from the ground and, and set into jewelry they're grown in a laboratory atom by atom layer by layer over the course of call it three or four weeks hmm. unreal but but similar similar to plants if i've got a, a tomato that grows in a greenhouse versus a tomato that grows right. out in a garden it's still right. a tomato 
Right. right. So I really do. I want to highlight the fact that what, what we grow and, and what is referred to as a lab grown diamond today are diamonds. The federal trade commission has even said that these do not need to be called synthetic. These are in fact diamonds. Yeah. It's fascinating. I want to also make a, a difference between the history of lab grown diamonds, like the current sort of options out there for lab grown diamonds is a bit different from ether diamonds. Correct. As far as like, cause they're get, they get it from extract from fossil fuels. Is that correct? Correct. So, I mean, that's the big, the big differentiator here. And there, I'd say there's probably two, one that is universal and one that is, you know, covers the vast majority of lab grown. So the first being the source of the carbon, we source every single atom of carbon for our diamonds from the atmosphere. So when you hold an ether diamond in your hand, that was nothing but air pollution a mere 12 weeks prior. Well, if we're talking about regular lab grown diamonds, they are sourcing their carbon from methane traditionally. And methane comes from oil drilling and fracking. So you can't without considering, I mean, if you, if you were to make a regular lab grown diamond and claim sustainability, you are negating the fact that there are scope two and scope three emissions related to the production of that raw material. And it's not something that can be utilized time and time again. So it's not a renewable resource. It is not a sustainable resource. It is a, you know, if, if you're utilizing fossil fuel based carbon. So that's the big differentiator here. Every thing that we do, we are trying to operate with radical transparency. We are trying to make sure that we're driving a real positive impact. And no matter what you're doing to, to maybe source clean power to produce your diamonds, if you're still doing it from fossil fuel carbon, it's not sustainable. So that's the big differentiator. And the second, as I just alluded to, is power. Uh, the vast majority of lab-grown diamonds are grown with dirty power. When I say dirty power, I mean non-renewable power. So this, this happens predominantly in various parts of Asia, India, and China. And these are areas that are you know not spending money on renewable power. They're, they're maybe operating with coal-fired power plants, uh, even natural gas, but regardless, there are emissions related to that power generation. So now, in addition to using fossil fuels to actually produce your diamond, you're also powering your manufacturing with fossil fuels. So there's this compounding effect. And, uh, and these are both things that we're trying to address. How, how, would, how could it be different? Like, how, how is it different for, for you guys, right? Like, from the power point of view, like, how, like each one of those points, right? Like, how is, how is Ether trying to do those stages differently because that that's probably equally as difficult as uh, growing the diamonds all these other steps are equally as difficult at scale yeah and, and and it can be it's getting better and i think one of the unlocks that makes this the perfect time for a company like ours is the the developments that we've seen with respect to renewable power not only in terms of availability but cost solar mm -hmm. and wind have now mm -hmm. become competitive right yeah. uh, it, it's it's really interesting to to kind of understand how that has changed and how fast it changed when i talked about the why now for this company, even just two years ago, people gave me pushback. Mm -hmm. Today, when I say, yeah, now we have the ability to tap into renewable power options and, and produce our goods using responsibly sourced electrons, it, it, it's now not even something that gives people you know, reason to pause. So that that change has been very recent and uh, you know, ensuring that we're utilizing renewables through our, our supply chain is very important to us. So the goal long-term uh, by say 2023, we actually, it, expect to be a fully carbon negative company, you know, so not just the product, but operations as well. We, we'd look to be generating our own power on site using renewable sources and potentially returning excess clean power to the grid. Wow. Like you said, there's, there's sort of CO2 everywhere, right? You can extract it from New York, right? Or Chicago or Beijing or Morocco, wherever is when you do that, it does it, is there a time that it can be stored to where it's, premier point is that a certain time once you capture it you have to kind of go through the start the process or can you store it you know have it as almost in air inventory right to where you're ready to go you can then 
start the process of, of growing it. Well, so, so there's a couple ways I can answer this. Storing carbon is very possible. Mm -hmm. We can store it in a number of different ways. We don't necessarily want to store it as CO2. CO2, okay. you know, if we were to fill a big tank up with, with liquefied CO2, okay. it has to evaporate, yeah. right? Otherwise pressure builds up as, as that mm -hmm. vessel warms and, and, you know, we can get into a sticky situation. Sure, sure. Uh, but if you can, if you convert that into your hydrocarbon, it can be stored long-term uh, and, and, Frankly, I mean, we could just grow the rough diamond and, and having rough diamond is the best way to store it. Um, it's, it's functionally inert. It's small. It's compressed. We can, we can store it very easily. And then we can cut gemstones from it as needed. So realistically speaking, I don't know that we would ever look to store anything but the actual diamonds. But, you know, this is an ongoing manufacturing process and we look to be, you know, inventory light so that, you know, you're getting as close to made to order as possible. Like right. we won't hold, it's not like we just have the diamond and, and we have the jewelry. And when someone orders it, we cut the diamond, stick it in the jewelry and ship it out. Everything is made from scratch. So when, when you wow. come to our website and buy an engagement ring, we're not pulling something off the shelf. That engagement ring is, it needs to be made for you. So, you know, we're putting a little bit of love into every piece. That's crazy. So when we talk about actually um, capturing it, where are the, is there just a lab? Um, and then can you trans, like, like you said, it, it's going to be way worse air quality in Thailand than it will be in like New York or Delaware, right? So do you have labs in places where there's bad air quality or can you extract the CO2 from air in Thailand and then ship it to a lab or ship it to the ether lab to, to start the growing? So, I mean, the short answer is yes, we could do that. The longer answer is there's not really a reason we would want to do that long-term. If we can re remove shipping right. from our overall logistics, that's yep. going to improve the the net impact of the company. You know, so we do want to vertically integrate right now in our initial go-to-market as we you know had to prove out this manufacturing technique um, and really get our tech stack operational. We had to do it in a, in a you know disparate manner. So we actually have three different facilities that, you know, each handle one phase of, of production. We are going to be unifying them over the course of the next, you know, call it year and year and a half under one roof. So by vertically integrating, not only does that enable us to have a, a tighter level of control over our net environmental impact, but and and monitor every single aspect of production, but also just streamline things from from an operational and, and logistics standpoint. So uh, that is the goal. Right now, we're collecting our carbon. It happens on the on the roof of the Kizo power plant in Hinville, Switzerland, with our partner Climeworks. And ah. you know, we we take that. And, you know, that the actual diamond is grown here in the United States. So it's already happening in a, in a, in a fairly spread out manner today, but we are going to be consolidating. That is, that's the path forward for the company. When you talk to your old friends, maybe at, at David Uriman or other sort of, you know, historically branded jewelry companies, do you see them a lot like we see every car company, right? Going to EV, right? It seems like in the matter of 36 months, every car company is going to be, you know, electric by 2025, their full fleet of cars, right? Do you see that transformation happening where either is sort of the Tesla, where every single traditional jury company starts to do a similar process? Yes and no. So there's definitely a trend moving in favor of sustainability, but you're not going to find luxury brands, right? So David Yerman's a luxury brand, right? Mm -hmm. This is not necessarily something that is going to be at every shopping mall. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's different than, you know, some of the nationwide retailers you'll see advertised on TV. They're, they're not going to use regular lab grown diamonds. There's a, 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 a misalignment in consumer perception. Regular lab grown diamonds are, they don't have a special story. So it, 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 Tesla did something different for the automotive industry because they 
they were the poster child. They got the attention. You know, they, they started driving that shift by changing consumer sentiment. We're not going to be able to do that with regular lab-grown diamonds. However, I do see those brands coming to us and saying, hey, we'd like right, to use right. your diamonds for our collections moving forward. Right now, we're focused on you know, direct-to-consumer. Mm -hmm. We are not in a position to, to go and supply these big heritage brands with all of the diamonds that they need for their production. But at some point in the future, we could be. And, and hope to be. So, you know, it, we would definitely compare to Tesla in terms of how we approach our consumer footprint long-term. You know, if Tesla was selling their electric motors to right. these other car companies, that would be a better uh, analogy. But uh, I do think that there's an opportunity for us to grow a, a, a big wholesale footprint in the long-term. Yeah, that, that would be sort of the game changer if you could, you know, it, it's it's kind of how you you scale good in a way is that you these, exactly. these, these big companies, just it's hard to transform into a sustainable company when you you haven't been that way since your existence, right? It's just they hard won't, to make that shift. They won't do it unless it it aligns with their other initiatives, whether that be mm -hmm. you know just the the way that they want to merchandise and position their line, their collections. We get to come in and introduce a really sexy story, you know, something that that really can grab people's attention and has a halo effect, makes them look good for doing it, and. You know, hopefully uh, works out in a number of different ways, just at a business level. Back in 2018, so far ago, when when you were chatting with with people and they kind of not scoffed at the idea, right, but just didn't take it too seriously. Have you talked to those people recently just about the transformation in those two years and sort of this moment of time where where Ether is kind of like it, it's such a perfect timing in every aspect from just the way sort of domestic policy is going and really global energy policy is going and just the sustainability force around the world is sort of infecting, you know, business sectors everywhere, right? Which, which is amazing. Had, had those people come back to you and, and, and just be like, man, you called it and I totally missed the, missed the boat. <laughs> you know, we, we were pretty good at staying in stealth and not really talking about this publicly. We did reach out. I mean, this is one of the benefits of having, you know, co-founders that come from the industry, but, you know, we know the head of diamond buying at some of these big brands. We get to, you know, call someone that we know, call someone who's 4th of July barbecue I've been to, you know, multiple times and be able to have those conversations with friends who also happen to be in the industry and, and, and let them know. And you know, I, I, whether it's because we had personal relationships or not, feedback even from those early days was, wow, if you guys could do this, <laughs> you, you better let me know first. And, you know, as things have developed, we've continued to stay really hush-hush and being kind of in, in, in stealth mode. We started really teasing out conversations with some big brands just because, you know, the sales process can be rather lengthy and we want to get in the door sooner rather than later. But the feedback from the industry since the very early days has been positive. And, and now I think to your point, the timing is, is great. And mm -hmm. I, I think... You know, there there was a little bit of like luck there, right? You know, we, yeah, we saw sure. cer certain trends moving. There's a little bit of prescience, a little bit of luck. It's it's a it's a mix of the two. I can't say like we knew for sure that this was going to be timed out so well, but like you know, I, I'll never forget in 2020 when you know the West Coast was basically on fire, and I had people calling me up saying like, as soon as we get through this whole COVID thing, you know, climate's going to be right back at the forefront of of conversation, and it could not have worked out better in our benefit. You know, the fact that I hate to say this, but like the problems we're having with our climate are becoming more apparent. Mm -hmm. The destruction and the way that it impacts humanity is becoming more apparent. And that's only going to drive consumer sentiment. That's going to continue to support the trend line we've seen where 
consumers, especially younger consumers who believe it or not are the ones buying diamonds, like two thirds of all diamonds in mm -hmm. 2019 that were sold were purchased by Gen Z and millennial consumers. So these younger consumers who are voting with their dollars are looking for brands that have alignment of personal value, right? Like if, if I wanted to buy a piece of diamond jewelry five, 10 years ago, sustainability might not have even been something that crossed my mind. Right. Five, 10 years from now, it's going to be a major consideration that goes into that purchase. So, you know, we, we do feel really well-timed uh, in how we've gone to market. And I think the reception from consumers and the press is, is generally supports that concept. And we've just been so excited that, you know, the world is uh, is into what we're doing. I wanted to touch on a little bit more on, on climate change at the, at the moment. You don't have to go in as much as, as, much as you can, because I know you're like a climate scientist, right? So some of these questions just you know, it might not be relevant, but we're talking about sustainability. We're talking about sort of carbon capture. We touched on climate change. I guess, how does, for, for the layman like me out there, how does carbon capture affect climate change, right, in a positive way? Like, how is, how, how can people looking at that understand it in a way, like an elementary level, right? Like, the less CO2 we have in the air is good for climate change, correct, at its simplest level? Yeah, so I'll break it down for you. CO2 is, you know, there are a number of different greenhouse gases, right? Uh, methane, which I mentioned before, is actually worse for the environment by a significant degree, but it's a more volatile compound, so it breaks mm -hmm. down faster. So you, you admit, CO, you know, CO2 into the air, it's going to last upwards of 100 years, right? And, and, and so, I mean, it's just real quick at its base level, that is just from the amount of cars we have on the road, just the manufacturing process of products in general around the world, just all emit CO2. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of different major contributors that you need to look at it uh, you know, to, to understand kind of where it all comes from transportation and the transportation sector. It's not just cars, it's planes, it's, it's trains that are, that are sure. require power. And if that power is not coming from sustainable sources, you know, you have all of these different factors from the transportation sector, uh, buildings and inefficiency in, in buildings. I mean, I grew up in a house that was built in 1895. So it was really cool growing up in a, in a really old house, but it was a really inefficient house, you know? So uh, you, you spend a bunch of energy heating that house through the winter and, and that's just getting lost through drafty windows and, and areas of, the, of that structure that just are not well insulated. And actually, if you look into, into just like the footprint of buildings and energy inefficiency, that's rather significant as well. Wow. Um, there are a number of different things and, and, and we could really get into that, but it would be an entire conversation. <laughs> what I would boil it down to is this. We're putting out a ton of carbon into our atmosphere every year, year over year. Even if we were to stop doing all of that, there's still all of that legacy carbon that's mm. already in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So direct air capture is really, really important because no matter what we do to mitigate further emissions, we absolutely still need to remove some of that historical carbon that's already sitting in the air. So how can we do that? Well, we can plant trees. We can go and, and really not only plant new forests, but protect existing forests. So reforestation, afforestation, mangrove development, planting speck root, regenerative farming, right? So soil can actually capture carbon if, hmm. if certain practices are in place. And, and so not, not outrageous things though, right? Like the- The natural the, climate solutions that are available yeah. to us today are plentiful, but yeah. they're challenges, right? If, if you plant a forest, as those trees grow, they're pulling carbon out of the air right? Like the, the cellulose that makes up the tree, that's carbon-based, right? Mm -hmm. So they're literally turning air into wood. And if that forest burns down, all mm -hmm. of that carbon goes right back into the mm -hmm. air. Mm -hmm. So where direct air capture comes from, uh, comes into play and why it's so important is it, it helps augment the total capacity of, of drawdown potential for how much we can actually pull out of the air because natural climate solutions are not going to be fast enough. We, we can't plant enough forests fast enough to, to prevent 
catastrophic climate change or the path that we're currently on. So we need these tech-enabled solutions to augment these natural, you know, natural climate solutions. And we need to do it in a way where it's not just capturing carbon, but sequestering it as well. So if I were to pull down atmospheric carbon and use it to make you know, CO2 for bottling beverages, right? Every time you buy a soft drink or a bottle of beer, it's got CO2 in it. Um, CO2 is used to pressurize the, the lines at the tap when you're, when you're buying a, a pint at the bar. That CO2 is sourced traditionally through, it's as a byproduct of a number of different industrial processes, none of which are environmentally friendly. So being able to kind of substitute that is great, but at the end of the day, the carbon still ends up back in the air. Um, you know, I drink a beer, I burp, that CO2 is going right back into the air and it, it finds its way back. So that's not a sequestration. Sequestration is when you pump it underground and it, and it chemically binds to rock formations or you turn it into a diamond. You know, these are not the only two ways of sequestering carbon, but if it's permanent, then you can call it sequestration. Otherwise it's, you know, carbon capture and utilization. And there's, I think one of the biggest challenges with the space is all of the language and it's so confusing. And people ask me all the time, you know, what's, what's the difference between a carbon credit and a carbon <laughs> offset and a carbon offset versus a carbon sink. And, you know, this is one of the challenges that will, as a society, solve as people become more educated over time. You know, if you if you talked about climate change 10 years ago, everyone's like, what's climate change? I know what global warming is. Mm -hmm. And then we realize that, you know, weather and climate are two different things and people are becoming more savvy around that. And, that, and that'll be something that kind of continues to evolve and, and will benefit humanity at large as people become a little bit more, you know, tied into to what the different meanings are. And, you know, for us, it's really important that the carbon that gets pulled down be sequestered. And that's why diamond, I, I mean, you've heard the, the saying a diamond is forever. And what mm -hmm. I love about that is it, it's true. You turn atmospheric carbon into a diamond, it's never going back into the air. And that's something that, that we, uh, we're pretty excited about. A couple more questions here before, before we end. Uh, one would be the direct air capture and the possibilities of that. Maybe, maybe just not in in sort of the diamond sector, right? But maybe if you if you weren't starting, if you didn't start a diamond company, like what are some of the other things for maybe other aspiring entrepreneurs out there that they can look to and say, hey, direct air capture can not only create lab grown diamonds, but it can also create these other things, maybe in other sectors that could have the same sort of sustainable impact. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 tough to say for a few reasons. I mean, there are, there are different ideas that we'd like to pursue <laughs> ourselves down the road. So gotcha, gotcha. You know, don't want to sure. give up some of our ideas. Sure, honestly, sure. you know, we, we put it this way. You are carbon-based. I am carbon-based. The computers that we're using to communicate right now are carbon-based. If we're able to mine the sky for carbon, there are different ways that carbon can end up in products that we know and use and love. How we do that, how we do it responsibly, those are big questions that need to be answered, but there are ways to do it. And you know, I think the proof is in the pudding. We've done this now. You know, you you can you can utilize technology to drive real impact. You can use business to do good. You know, we we incorporated as a public benefit corporation with the explicit goal of making sure that we are respecting our number one stakeholder, planet Earth, you know, above all else. And really it's it's super important to us that for every diamond we produce, there is a real tangible impact on the environment. And the same could be said for a number of different products that get introduced, whether those are raw materials for industrial use, for consumer consumption or consumer goods. So you know, at the end of the day, I just encourage people who are interested to to start paying attention. This is this is going to be the biggest area of wealth creation in our lifetime, right? This is going to be the biggest opportunity as climate comes to the forefront in all that we do. It's the number one underlying trend that I'm bullish on across anything happening on this planet. So uh, you know, if you're interested in getting into the space, there are some great resources. You know, I, I always tell people check out the My Climate Journey podcast. 
right? There's a there's this fantastic podcast started by a guy named Jason Jacobs. Um, I don't even know how many episodes he's he's into it now, but I started listening to it when I wanted to get into the climate space, you know, as we started working on this project. And there's a fantastic Slack community now, and I've met so many fantastic people. On Deck has their climate fellowship, yeah. which I'm, I'm super yeah, we just, excited. We just had them on yeah, a couple of weeks oh, ago. Fantastic! Yeah. I I I just I just found out I was accepted into the fellowship, so uh, I'm going to be. It was so fun. I was going to mention that to you when we got off. I was like, you gotta you gotta go here and 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 join and join that because it, it's it's amazing people like you really yeah. just doing some. Can awesome, I awesome can I ask things. who who did you who did you interview? Was it Candace by any chance? We we did Candace and Ty. Yeah, Ty who nice. does On Deck nice. Scale. Yeah. Yeah, and Candace, absolutely. He, yeah, absolutely. So I met Candace through the My Climate Journey Slack community, and and uh, you know she obviously was espousing all the you know the benefits of of the On Deck <laughs> Fellowship. Sure. And uh, I said, you know, I'm gonna throw my hat and throw my my hat in the ring, and uh, yeah, we're excited. I think it I think it actually kicks off this weekend. <laughs> yeah, no, congrats! It's it's gonna be amazing. It, it, I'm bullish on them, you know, uh, on what they're doing. So one last question, I'll sort of end on this and I try to end on a little bit of the future. And I know that's tough sometimes, but I'd like to just get an idea of sort of long-term thought processes. And, you know, from like we mentioned five, 10 years down the line, what does success look like, you know, for you, whether it's, you know, personally or, or from an ether perspective, what is, what are some of the successes that you would like to see? right from from the company or from you in general is it is it just tackling you know climate and, and really using consumerism to do so right or is it using technology to just innovate different sectors uh, around the world around this sort of climate tech that's like you said, it's it's going to be sort of the next wave of job creation and wealth creation. Um, so, what does the five ten years look like? In our articles of incorporation, where we lay out the, you know the reason for our existence, we we stipulate that it's not just about the development and commercialization and development and commercialization of like sustainable manufacturing technologies that is core to it, but it's also you know serving as an example to promote positive business practices. You know, for for companies all over the world that are looking to understand how can they be more responsible, we do want to be able to serve as that example. But our number one KPI ultimately comes down to how much carbon we're removing from the air. So, you know, my goal over the next five years is to remove as much as we possibly can. Uh, we have some some lofty goals long term. You know, I I would love to scale to such a degree that we could remove the entire carbon footprint of the diamond trade. That's not that crazy mm. to think. Mm. You know, it it doesn't require a whole lot of deep market penetration to get to that point, and that excites the heck out of me. Because you know, if we're offsetting the entire footprint of the industry, then we can start chipping away at the historical carbon that the diamond wow. trade has yeah. pumped into into the air over the last century, and, and that's that's something that uh you know will will have have a, a lasting impact on the planet, and and that's my ultimate goal. That's why I started the company is leaving this planet a little better than it was when I arrived. And for me, you know, kind of going beyond that, there's there's this one underlying trend that we know is going to persist over the next five to 10 years and even 20 years, the number of diamonds coming from the ground is actually reducing year over year. So when you open a new mining operation, you know what the mineral deposit looks like. You know how much kimberlite is there. Mm -hmm. You know how long you're going to be able to mine diamonds from the ground. And some of those mines are running up on their expiration date. The, the, the Diavik mine, uh, I believe, is closing in 2025. It's it's located right next to a massive body of water. In five years, when they've stopped pulling carbon from crystal carbon from, from this mine, they're going to flood it with water and you know it'll be left for the fishes. That is going to happen to 70% of all of the mines that are operational today by the year 2040. So the number of diamonds coming from the ground is going to cut in half over the next 20 years. But demand goes up every year. So that's going to do some wonky stuff to you know supply demand. When demand goes up and supply goes down, 
drives prices up, which is only beneficial for anyone that's in the trade. And it means at a, at a societal level, if human beings want to continue buying diamonds, we need to backfill. We need to have a new source for diamonds. So the future of lab grown is certain. And, and that's really what excites me. If we know that this future of the industry is moving in that direction, and we have this differentiated story, mapping that to how we want to achieve our goals on the decarbonization front is something that we can do with a high degree of confidence. And that's what excites me. Wow. Love it, my man. Th thank you so much for for taking the time. I, I I'm glad we could put this together because I've been you know following from from afar for for a while. Glad to see it launched. Glad to see it you know doing well within the first few months of of being live. And, and I just can't wait to see the growth and and just see the impact that it creates. You know, not only just in in, in the diamond sector, but I think can be an innovative approach to a lot of other sectors around the world. And I think that's what you know, inspires me about, about all this is that it could always inspire and generate things we don't even think about, right? And, and people will think about ways to use this technology and this process to, you know, create amazing things that, that will go on to, to impact the world in, in different ways, right? So uh, appreciate the time and thanks for the knowledge. Of course. Well, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Grant.